Happy Easter! Today on Fuzzy Logic, it is Easter Sunday, and so we're talking about a whole heap of Easter-based science. We've got plenty of chocolate lined up for you, and as well as that, we're going to talk about some hopping robots and the massive Rabbit King, which I think has to be the biggest Easter bunny of them all. All that and more coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra. I hope you're doing well on this Easter Sunday morning and the Easter Bunny has hopped by and visited your place and you're feeling very happy and hopped up on chocolate and all those fantastic hot cross buns that do come along with Easter. I know I enjoyed a hot cross bun this morning, which is absolutely lovely. And uh, joining me in the studio this morning is Alice. And Alice, did you get a hot cross bun this morning? I sure did. It was Nutella one too. (laughs) Oh, made no, a huge mess. They're really good. Yeah, I saw them the other day. It, it, it seemed a bit extreme for a hot cross bun, but it's just like a big blob of Nutella. Yeah, in the yeah. Middle. It's yeah. like you know, you fill a profiterole with custard. These were like filled with Nutella. Look, I mean, you can't go wrong, can you? It's um, that's what Easter's all about: is oh, fruit buns and chocolate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both at once. But exactly, exactly. Uh, Very exciting times. Well, my name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, It is Easter time, but of course, we are the science show, so we're going to be talking about science all throughout today. And we've been trying to find the most Easter-based science we could uh, to celebrate. And so we've got some really interesting stuff coming up, and I think hopefully... uh, we might be able to help you justify some of your chocolate eating habits and uh, we might be able to help solve the mystery of the Easter bunny, possibly. Mm. We'll see how we go with that one. <laughs> but, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. But we should jump into, first of all, this day in science because today is, of course, the 20th of April, Easter Sunday. And what's happened in the past on this day? Well, back in 1914, uh, American physiologist Rabbit a rabbit. Robert Robert Galambos was born, um, and he, along with his, uh, one of his students, Donald Griffin, confirmed that bats use echolocation to avoid obstacles while in flight. Uh, which was a a suggestion that was made earlier, uh, a century and a half before he did, uh, by a scientist called Jureen. And he said that bats could hear sounds beyond the human range and that this ability facilitated their night flight. Uh, So (laughs) in the experiment, which was done in 1938 by Galambos, I love this, they they set up a special microphone in a dark room uh, and to prove that bats flying in the dark could see by emitting ultrasonic vocal sounds, uh, they they plugged the bat's ears, which showed that flight was severely impaired when they put plugs oh, in the bat's ears. Oh, bats. I know, I know. <laughs> and well, the other thing they did to prove that, you know, it was the bats emitting the sound as well, was they held their mouths closed with a loop of thread. <laughs> so they couldn't make their little echolocation blips and uh, therefore couldn't fly about in the dark. I wonder if that had passed an ethics board these days. <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> Possibly not. Strange things you can do with animals. But look, it did show yeah. that bats um, use echolocation. It also kind of shows that that whole saying of blind as a bat actually isn't quite true. They can see reasonably well mm. and uh, they see well in the dark due to echolocation. Well, they see in uh, inverted commas there well in the dark through echolocation. Uh, what else happened on this day, Alice? Yeah, so in 1928, the 
English-American radio astronomer and mathematician Gerald Stanley Hawkins was born. He is the guy who had a look at Stonehenge and figured out it was probably a Neolithic observatory. Um, so William Stuckley back in the 18th century had noticed that the way the stones are set up um, sort of points in the direction of the sunrise in the middle of summer. Um, so Hawkins had a closer look based on this and identified 165 key points that correlated the stones and other archaeological features of the site to line them up with the setting positions of the sun and the moon over an 18.6 year cycle, apparently. So like a, almost like a giant sundial. Um, and yeah, published in Nature in 1963 and then wrote a book called Stonehenge Decoded, published in 1965. Yeah. Um, I, I reckon it must have been pretty exciting to discover, you know, all those those little things like, oh, and it lines up with this and then this does this. Yeah. And, but the fact they came up with it in the first place is just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't underestimate what people can do with a bunch of big rocks, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and the, the positioning and all those sorts of things, yeah. they, they must have... I don't know how they did <laughs> they, they didn't have a computer like Gerald no, Hawkins to it, work it, it all out. took him computer analysis to figure out what on earth was going on with it. They did it all the long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. It's, and on this day in 1862... Uh, there was the first test of pasteurisation uh, completed by Louis Pasteur and Claude Bernard, uh, which was uh, a huge experiment and, and plays a huge role in food production today. Um, what they did is they opened up jars that they'd sealed on the 3rd of March back in 1862 and they opened them at a meeting of the French Academy of Sciences. Uh, they contained dog's blood and urine uh, that they'd maintained at an elevated temperature of 30 degrees Celsius. And interestingly, neither liquid showed observable decay of or fermentation, which suggested the possibility that heating foods sufficiently to kill germs without significantly altering their chemical composition uh, could, could have some applications. Uh, soon after pasteurization was applied by brewers. Who, Naturally. Of course, that, that's <laughs> the first thing you use it for. Um, and that's to, to stop the beer from brewing and to keep it uh, from going bad. And that, So they heat the finished beer to above 70 degrees Celsius to kill harmful bacteria and give a germ-free beer, uh, which meant that beer didn't require constant refrigeration for lengthy shipment or storage. Eventually, it also became used for milk and other products and stuff like that. But they started with the important stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. You know, we associate pasteurization with milk now, mm. cream and so on. But nut was first used for beer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They've got their priorities straight, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think Pasteur knew what he was doing. Well, actually, I, I, I'm most impressed, actually, that it's in France and they're using it on beer. Because France isn't particularly known for their beer, more for their wines. Yeah, that's true, um, actually. But no, it's good they're using it for beer. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping forward in time a little bit, in 1964, this, this one's really cool. This is like old school sci-fi cool. The first <laughs> picture phone transcontinental call was made between New York City and Anaheim, California. So they got a telephone, attached a little TV to it, and made... A picture call. 
They're having FaceTime back in 1964. <laughs> yeah, that Apple, you think you're innovative? No, it was done in 1964. <laughs> um, so they debuted it at the World's Fair in Chicago in 1964. It costs between 16 and $27 for a three-minute call from... <laughs> Um, between New York, Washington, and Chicago. Um, and it was popular enough that they tried offering it commercially, but it sort of flopped. No one wanted to pay that much for a grainy television picture of the other person, apparently. No, no, I can't <laughs> imagine that it would be that useful. Um, you know, but, I mean, that's back when, you know, international calls were a big thing. Oh, yeah. And I remember um, last Christmas my little brother was over in Germany mm. uh, and so we Skyped him uh, in, uh, it was Christmas morning over there, it was evening over in Australia, um, and my, my great uncle, who's in his 90s, was just yeah. amazed by it. Um, and and he's, a, he's a reasonably technologically literate person, but he was just okay. sitting there and he's going, but, but hold on, we should be quick because this will cost us lots of money. And we're going, no, 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 it's fine. It's on yeah. the internet. It doesn't cost anything. Like, but but he's in Germany and it, 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 he was amazed. Yeah. It was great. I have a very <laughs> similar story when I was overseas for Christmas a couple of years ago. Yeah. Just set up Skype and they put the computer at the end of the table. So I was there for Christmas lunch oh, while I was there lovely. having my dinner. It was really sweet. <laughs> But Nana's going, oh, this must be costing a fortune. Oh, you'd better shut it off. Oh, dear. It must be so expensive. No, yeah. oh, she's been there for an hour now. Oh, this is ridiculous. Oh, dear. How can you afford this? That's right. It's, it's a completely different way of looking at yeah. things now. Yeah. Uh, it's gorgeous. Indeed. Indeed. Well, the last one for this day we've got uh, for this episode was back in uh, 1927, uh, the birth of Carl Alex Müller, a uh, Swiss physicist. And uh, Müller shared the 1987 Nobel Prize for Physics uh, for a joint discovery of superconductivity in certain substances at higher temperatures than previously thought. Uh, so they startled the world of uh, superconductors uh, by reporting uh, superconductivity in a layered ceramic material uh, at a then record high temperature of 33 degrees above absolute zero, which is minus 240 degrees Celsius. Uh, and so that uh, discovery set new re research worldwide into related materials and uh, came forward with dozens of new superconductors, in fact, uh, eventually reaching a transition temperature of minus 138 degrees, which is, you know, a little about 100 degrees warmer than what they did, but certainly a lot higher than, than was initially thought possible. Uh, but, of course, superconductors are... are playing a huge role in, in the technology now. And, and there's new research you've found just recently, Alice. Yeah, um, it's not actually technically a superconductor because it doesn't work quite the same way. It's called stannine. It's a ribbon of tin that's only one atom thick. So this is a um, theoretical material. No one's managed to synthesize it yet. So some guys have done some computations. They were initially playing around trying to figure out uh, some high-temperature superconductors or superconductor-like materials um, with bismuth, tellurium, antimony, and mercury, which are not exactly my favorite elements. No, they're, no. they're kind of a bit poisonous. Yeah. They're not real nice. They may as well chuck some arsenic into that lot. <laughs> um, 
But so they they've tried a few of these heavy metal nasty type materials, and some people have actually managed to make them, and they had the properties they predicted. Then one of the guys in this research group um, at Stanford went, "Hey, hang on." Why don't we move up the periodic table a bit and give tin a shot? And, yeah, playing around with some ideas and came up with... It's called a topological insulator, which right. is you not break that actually down. very descriptive. <laughs> yeah. So what it is, is most of the chunk of material isn't actually able to carry electricity. But on the very surface of it, or with the stannine tin ribbon on the edges of the ribbon, it carries electricity with no resistance, just like a superconductor. Uh But the really nifty thing about this is that superconductors, the best we've got, yeah, is about minus 140 degrees Celsius to work. These will work at room temperature. Wow, that's a huge difference. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they're already talking about um, chucking them into computer chips to get smaller, faster, and very importantly, cooler processes. Yeah. That's one of the major barriers to getting computers smaller and smaller is they get hotter and hotter and hotter to the point where they stop working. Yeah. Um, and that's because of the fact that the conductors in a computer chip aren't perfect conductors. And when you don't have a perfect condu- conductor, it gets hot when you pass electricity through it. The Stanian ribbons wouldn't. Amazing. I know. <laughs> so, but it's all theoretical still it at this stage? It is all theoretical at this stage. Um, they published this um, at the end of last year, actually, so it's a few months old now. Um, no one has yet managed to get it to work. So if you've heard of graphene, which is where it gets its name from, it's the carbon version, is one atom thick carbon. People have been playing with it for a while. It's a pretty good conductor. If you do the right thing with it, it can do some fairly interesting things, but we're sort of getting to the limit of it. Yeah. Graphene is easy because graphite comes in graphene layers and you can actually make graphene by using scotch tape and sticking it to a chunk of graphite pulling it off and it's it's almost yeah it's almost as simple as you know coloring with a lead pencil which is actually graphite in there almost yeah and that's taking off layers of graphene absolutely literally you stick some sticky tape on some graphite and pull it off and you've got a graphene on (laughs) sticky tape um you can't do that with stanine you've actually got to build it okay um which is kind of (laughs) difficult because if you get interrupted while you're trying to make it, you lose all your perfect, neat structure and you've got to start again. Uh. So it might be a little while till it actually appears. Mm. 
But while we wait and go searching for some Easter eggs, let's have a little bit of music. It's about 10 to 12 on Easter Sunday and you're listening to...
Well, we've got more coming up uh, on Easter in just a moment. We're going to be talking about some Easter animals. But for now, let's have a little bit of a music break. Matt Corby with his song Resolution there. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, on your Easter Sunday. Hot 